Do you believe in Bigfoot? What about Ogopogo or Loch Ness Monster? I want to believe. For most people, these so-called cryptids are just monsters of legend, as real as aliens or vampires. Sure, they may make for funny hoaxes and inspire some X-Files episodes, but their connection to reality and to real science is non-existent, right? But imagine for a minute the deepest, densest forest, somewhere so remote it's never been observed by human eyes. Maybe there's no legendary ape-like animal hiding there, But look down at your feet. Look at the insects crawling under the rocks and logs. Is it so unlikely to think that here, where evolution is always chipping away, there isn't some fascinating animal that has never been described? And is the act of looking, the search for these new and strange forms of life, not, in a way, like the search for cryptids? When we dismiss cryptozoology, maybe we're dismissing a way of seeing the world with wonder and interest, excitement, and the feeling that humans don't know everything. So put on your boots, grab your binoculars, and keep an open mind as we delve into this week's episode on all things cryptic. From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. You're listening, you're listening. You're listening. You're listening. to Terra Informa. My name is Kurt Blandy. And I'm Sophia Osborne. We'll be your hosts for the next half hour of environmental news, stories, and ideas. Before we begin this episode, we would like to acknowledge that this episode was produced in Treaty 6 territory in Amiskotsi, Wiskaigan, Beaver Hills House, or so-called Edmonton. We are broadcasting from unrecognized Papas Chase Cree territory. The Papaschase Cree were displaced following consistent efforts from local officials like Frank Oliver to discredit the legitimacy of their treaty right to this territory and to reserve number 136, now South Edmonton. Not confined to history, this region is also the present homelands of many First Peoples who build their lives here, pursue livelihoods, and gather together, including Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, and Dene. Wherever you're listening from, we ask that you consider whose version of history informs your understanding of the land you're on. And as we talk today about stories, legends, and beliefs, remember that Indigenous ways of understanding have been systemically marginalized and silenced for far too long. The creatures discussed in today's episode hold significance for many Indigenous peoples and cultures, and we urge you to overcome superficial understandings to consider their importance more complexly. You can deny all the things I've seen, all the things I've discovered, but not for much longer. Because too many others know what's happening out there. So, during this past pandemic winter, I started watching The X-Files for the first time. I'll admit, I was mostly in it for the will-they-won't-they romantic tension between Scully and Mulder. But the monsters of the week and conspiracy theories quickly sucked me in. And I noticed something. In a lot of the more cryptozoology-type episodes about apes in the woods, or monsters in the lake, or even huge swarms of insects killing loggers, I could see a strong environmental thread running through them. I started to wonder, could I read the X-Files and cryptozoology through an environmentalist lens? Luckily, there's another X-Files fan on the Terra Informa team, and Kurt and I started chatting about how we could make a cryptozoology episode happen. 
I watched X-Files growing up, and to this day, I have a huge crush on Scully, although her pessimistic attitude toward the paranormal drove me up the wall. It's gotta be hypnotism or, or mesmerism or something. Scully, it is what it is. You examined an invisible body, remember? I thought I did. When Sophia and I started talking about cryptozoology, I had a ratatouille moment of remembering my childhood, hiding under my Star Wars blanket too scared to sleep after watching the Sewer Monster episode. Yeah, I couldn't make it through the whole Sewer Monster episode. I was trying to eat dinner and it was just not working for me. <laughs> anyway, in preparation for this episode, I started looking into the connection between cryptozoology and conservation, and I found an article in The Conversation from 2017 called How the Search for Mythical Monsters Can Help Conservation in the Real World. I sent one of the authors, Bill Adams, an email to see if he'd like to chat about it. I'm Bill Adams. Uh, I'm originally a geographer and I teach about conservation and development at the Graduate Institute in Geneva, Switzerland. I asked Bill what he had thought about cryptozoology before he wrote the article, since it's generally considered to be a pseudoscience. I think like, a, like most other people, what I knew about it was that the sort of headlines, the search for a, you know, a Loch Ness monster or the search for Bigfoot or the Yeti. I guess my, feet, my, my general assumption was that, that those things were, um, were, were unlikely to exist in real, uh, real biological systems. But the more I looked into it, the more sort of broadly based it seemed to be and the more interesting uh, or the more continuities there were between um, sort of uh, between scientists hunting for undescribed or unknown species and other people hunting for more similarly undescribed and unknown species. And it seemed to me that sort of process of searching was not, not so different, whether your motivation was an unknown species of uh, a bird in a tropical forest or uh, an undescribed species in the depths of a Scottish loch. The principle of hunting was the searching was the same. I think that um, a lot of very serious scientists do have a, a sort of a negative view of, uh, of sort of monster hunting. But I think the people accepted the argument that actually searching for the unknown or the inadequately described was an important part of conservation. And I mean, it, there is no doubt that um, there's far too little known about um, a lot of species in conservation. There's the, the IUCN, the International Union of the Conservation of Nature, has a red list of endangered species, and significant numbers of them are described as data deficient. We kind of know they exist, we know they're extremely rare, but we don't know how rare, we don't know where they live. And so um, the hunting for things that may or may not be there is a is a mainstream, an important piece of mainstream science now, and uh, and therefore, in a sense, uh, you know, there, there is a continuity between that. I think people accepted that that notion. While I'm thinking that perhaps our article was a, you know, a bit of a, a bit of a, an amusement. One of the things I found most interesting from Bill's article was the idea that cryptozoology can encourage us to notice and embrace wonder for the real nature around us. It made me think of animals like the blue whale so big you could walk around inside its arteries, or male pufferfish who draw perfectly symmetrical crop circles on the ocean floor to attract mates. They may not be science fiction, but many of the animals that we have discovered are, in a way, stranger than fiction. 
Yeah, so I think, I mean, I had the experience recently of taking my uh, my grandchildren to a museum, uh, which was full of dinosaurs, skeletons and dinosaur models and things. And um, it was a delight to watch two small children kind of running around, um, discovering strange creatures for themselves. And I think it's easy for people who work in science to forget just how extraordinary nature is and just how sort of complex and subtle and weird it is in places and um, I think that uh, I think it's a great thing to rediscover that sort of to see it again as one did perhaps as a child when you turned the page and you thought you saw a giraffe and you thought wow what is that how does that work and indeed when you see a real giraffe that's pretty much your feelings wow how does that work why is that a good idea and I think that that element of wonder in looking at nature is uh, is really important mustn't be lost but it's also driven by species that are not present, that are gone. Extinct species have amazing resonance in the way people talk about, about wildlife. So you talk about a species like the passenger pigeon or the, or the dodo or, uh, or the quagga. Um, and these are sort of lost, lost species. And they, if you look at the history of conservation, they recur in the way in which people talk about why you must protect nature now, because these things have been lost. And we started to look at sort of the, the influence that the, the actually extinct or the almost extinct uh, had on, on contemporary conservation policy and, and contemporary conservation thinking and argued that actually a lot of conservation was, was driven by species that were either gone or who, which were so nearly gone um, that, uh, that huge efforts were put into to keeping them alive and that actually that was an important part of conservation that's not really not really recognised. And a rather nice notion that, you know, we, we live in a world of, of animal and plant ghosts, things have gone extinct uh, many times, and, uh, and that it's important to remember that biodiversity therefore has that kind of temporal dimension. Um, uh, and it's only in the last sort of few hundred years that, that humans have really been such a big driver of, uh, of extinctions. I was really interested in this idea that we're haunted by the ghosts of animals that have gone extinct, and that our guilt about the role we've played in extinctions has such an effect on our ways of thinking about conservation. It reminded me of de-extinction, the attempt to bring extinct species back from the dead through breeding and genetic engineering. And I asked Bill if the idea of de-extinction came up at all in his research on lost species and grief. I mean, I think the excitement over de-extinction reflects this anxiety about about loss and and as you say guilt uh, and a sense of not just trying to keep nature in some version of its pre-human influence form but also perhaps to be able to bring it back to restore it not just to restore the ecosystem but to, to restore the species and that is a kind of jurassic park fantasy and it, it, as you say it wakes all kinds of ethical issues and problems. I think at the simplest level it, it, it does reflect one of the big drivers of conservation concern which is this one about loss um, and uh, I think it's really interesting to reflect on on why people care so much about the loss of nature which, which they do, we do, I do uh, and to think why is that? Uh, what is what's really driving that concern? From talking with Bill, I realized that this idea of looking at biology through a cryptozoology framework could really change a lot about our appreciation for and excitement about nature. 
Yes, I think one of the things that's that's valuable about it is it encourages people to look. It encourages people to look at nature with the expectation of being interested and surprised. And I, I mean, there's a there's a whole field of science which is referred to now as citizen science, which is enabling citizens to gather scientific data. And it might be that you have a mobile phone app and you can take pictures of flowers or insects um, and then they can be identified and then you've got a location for those things. So rather than sending a science student out on their summer project to run around looking at butterflies, you get lots of people on their walks to do that. So that's a, I mean, that's a real area of science. And it, it's, it also is, is encouraging people to, to look and to, to name the unknown. What is that? Is that different from that? Why is it here? All those sorts of questions. And those, I think, are fundamental questions to, to, to build an understanding of, of nature and its diversity. And I think it's really important for conservation to encourage those sorts of things. And if among those people want to go out and look for, look for Bigfoot, well, great. It gets them out and it gets them looking. They might not find Bigfoot, but they might find all sorts of other things. And uh, they'll certainly be attuning themselves to nature in a way that's increasingly hard to do, but increasingly possible to do. That was Sophia Osborne speaking with Bill Adams about his research on how cryptozoology can help real-life conservation. You're listening to Terra Informa, a production of CJSR 88.5 FM. So right now, I'm reading Nathan Negan Noden Adler's novel, Wrist. Wrist is a novel about Wendigo, told from an indigenous and Western perspective. It explores ideas of internal conflict with the monster inside Church, a young man living in a family of Wendigo. Church has to come to grips with himself, as well as rise up to the challenge of protecting his family and his land from those that want to exploit the resources it holds. As soon as I started reading it, I knew I wanted to talk to Nathan about the cryptozoological and environmental themes of the book. Adler also just released a cryptid-focused compilation of short stories set in the same location called Ghost Lake. This book just received the 2021 Indigenous Voices Award in published English prose. Here's what Nathan Negan Noden Adler had to say about cryptids, cryptozoology, and the ways that these plot devices in a novel can explore themes of environmental conservation. So my name is Nathan Negan Noden Adler. Um, I also just pu- published under my English name, which is Nathan Adler, he or they. I'm a writer, I'm an artist, I'm a filmmaker, I'm an editor. I do lots of uh, different arts kind of related things. Um, mostly what I do is uh, I, I'm mostly a writer. So I write um, fiction, nonfiction, poetry, Mostly what I write is fiction and mostly what I write is urban fantasy and horror. Um, but I've, I've written all kinds of genres. Wrist is um, urban fantasy horror um, novel, but it's also, you, know, you don't know what's real in the narrative. So you, you don't know whether um, monsters are real or whether it's just like um, his internal uh, psychology happening. So the, the narrative kind of puts you in this weird um, space where you things might be real or they might not be real and I kind of try to maintain that throat. Uh, it's an indigenous monster story and it's written from the monster's perspective. Uh, when I was starting, first started writing it, um, I knew I wanted to write a horror novel and I knew I wanted to write um, urban fantasy because those are the genres I really uh, gravitate towards. Um, and, um, and I also like really literary books too so I kind of was fusing different things together in terms of what I wanted to create. I also knew I didn't want to, like when it came to writing, I was like, okay, well, a lot of urban fantasy books, they'll take 
um, a monster from myths or legends or traditional stories like folklore or folk tales and that, that those are the creatures and monsters they'll, they'll, they'll put into modern day settings. So that's basically urban fantasy, werewolves, uh, uh, vampires, that kind of thing. Um, so, but I wanted to focus, okay, well, if I'm gonna write uh, urban fantasy, then I might as well not do vampires because everyone's sort of vampires. And so I'll draw on something from my, um, my indigenous heritage. And that was the, uh, what I kind of gravitated towards was the Wendigo. In this episode, we've been talking a lot about cryptids, so I wanted to make sure I asked Nathan what a cryptid is to him. So I guess cryptids are like um, creatures that might or might not exist. They, maybe they've escaped classification. Um, maybe they're just uh, new, new creatures that haven't been discovered yet. And that was something that I was kind of playing on in Rist as well, is that kind of are they real, are they not real kind of, where you don't know where you are in terms of the narrative what and what's real. I've heard a lot about Wendigo through my life, but honestly, I can't quite put my finger on who it was that told me about them or how I learned about Wendigo. I asked Nathan where he heard about Wendigo and what they are to him. So I learned about the Wendigo from my mom who told me stories about the, the monster how he was this uh, cannibal who didn't have lips because he, he was so hungry, he ate his own lips. And she told me these creepy stories about the Wendigo and that, when I was younger. And that kind of like is what really sparked my interest. And also the Wendigo is, appears in uh, other stories, like myths and stuff that I'd read. So I, I knew about the Wendigo already. And then I guess that's where I learned about it. And then when I was writing the book, that's when I really started researching Windigo. I read myths and legends. I read um, Algernon Blackwood's um, Windigo story, which is the first kind of like time he, he, uh, the Windigo appeared in, in fiction. And it was he, so Algernon Blackwood's like a horror writer, but he's a European horror writer. So but that was the first time that the uh, the Windigo appeared in fiction. So the representation, the way Windigo is represented, comes from the cover image in, in his book because they had like a like a woodcut in Algernon's book. And um, it had like an image of the Wendigo and what it looks like. And that's to a large extent has kind of shaped the way people imagine the monster with the, the horns and stuff. But if you look at like um, Morisot's or Daphne Ojigs or other artists representation of the Wendigo, he looks a bit different. He usually has, he's a giant and he has matted hair and he's, he's like gobbling up villagers and he sees them as beavers but they're humans so he's got this like delusion that's making him see them as food is this monster real is it um is it a delusion is it a spirit that's visiting them is it is it just i didn't always want to have it too like cut and dry okay here's its supernatural creature it's real deal with it to the reader no it's always like oh maybe maybe it's not real maybe maybe it's just imagination maybe it's just you know like i like keeping that um, level of mystery between not knowing what when things are real and not real. So a lot of the times the characters have this connection to this spirit or being or creature and then you, you don't know whether that creature is a real being or it, um, yeah it puts you, the reader in an uncertain place where you have to make the, the, the leap. I did a etymological kind of 
cross-reference of all the spelling of the word for Wendigo. So there's like dozens and dozens like, of different spellings for the word Wendigo, Wendigo, and I, I wrote them all down. I had like a paragraph list of like every spelling I could come across. And then I came up with my own spelling because I wanted to make my own monsters and not have to uh, abide by traditional story because I was writing urban fantasy. So I wanted to make monster my own in some way in terms of the story I was telling and, and to separate it from the existing orthography, I guess, of the spelling of the monster. Yeah, drawing from the way they, the monster has been represented in art and also uh, in literature and, um, and spelling. In um, Western psychology, there's also this idea of Wendigos as being a cultural bound uh, psychological syndrome so that Wendigo psychosis is something that indigenous people could have like it's a it's an illness that people think that they are Wendigo um, and that's like the western kind of analysis of um, Wendigo as a, a psycho psychological disorder so there's different kind of histories and narratives about what the Wendigo is and I kind of try to weave all those things into my fiction when I was writing because I did a lot of research on like basically drawing from uh, traditional stories and also all the historical stuff I could find about Wendigos as like real beings and real spirits and then also just from mythology and legends. Cryptozoology is all about towing the line between real and not real. So I asked Nathan if he's ever had an experience with Wendigo and how real they are to him. Uh, I've just heard like ghost stories kind of about them. Like they're, they're more like a, a ghost story kind of sto story that you, that's similar to that, right? That's the context in which I've heard most of the stories, not like this is a real story, but I've also heard from other people that I've met saying, oh, they're, they're real spirits and you, you have to like kind of tread lightly around it. So from like a traditional perspective, I guess they're they're real spirits and you should kind of give them space and respect them as real beings. Um, but then there's also, I think as they appear in myths and legends, in that sense, they're just like characters from stories, right? That can be a story about good fighting evil or whatever the, the role more of the story is. So their reality as spirits and how they exist in stories. And then um, there's kind of like a range of like existence. So if you, it's similar to like a lot of uh, creatures from folktales, traditional folktales. So like vampires might have, maybe there was at one time a real supernatural belief in Eastern Europe about the actual existence of vampires at some at one point. And now they've just become creatures in, in stories and in, in, in mainstream horror, right? Yeah, I think a lot of times the way that the indigenous monsters get represented, they just get um, kind of like kind of condensed into this one image of what the what the monster is or could be or should be or what it looks like, and then it just uh, becomes a creature. In a lot of the stories, the, the creatures aren't always creatures. Sometimes they're just spirits or beings. So they might not they might not always look like they get. Kind of condensed into like a werewolf it's a thing it's a creature and it exists and it's it's out there maybe but i think in a lot of the stories those monsters are spirits so then they're not necessarily physical beings lastly i wanted to ask nathan if there are any specific environmental conservation themes in wrist or ghost lake in wrist there's like um a big uh fossil fuel kind of theme that runs through it so the the reserve in Ghost Lake or and, and in Risk, there's um dinosaur bones that are um, kind of like found 
and the, the dinosaur bones kind of parallel the themes of monstrosity and monsters and the, of extinct species, but then also they also represent the fossil fuels that are being extracted for resources. So then there's that parallel between um, extraction of resources and also the threat that that poses to the land um, and to the people. So the enemy or the bad guy in the story is actually like the oil baron guy is kind of like the bad guy in the story. <laughs> so he's the antagonist and then, yeah, and then in Ghost Lake, there's also like characters that are like, trying to extract resources and gain their, they're kind of cast as the enemy. They're trying to um, exploit the land of its resources. And again, I kind of cast them as the bad guys. And then the spirits of the land and the humans and their connection with those spirits or beings or creatures are, are kind of like the power that pushes them off. In, in Ghost Lake, there's, I had already done um, Windigo monsters. So I thought I would try doing other creatures and beings well, I guess the stories about those beings, they come from specific places, right? So there's different um, creatures from, if you if you look start looking at where the creatures come from, there's, there's certain commonalities between some monsters from the West Coast or from down South, but there's, there's different, um, in terms of indigenous monsters, there's, there's stories that come from particular places. They're also tied to specific cultures. So like the people bring those stories with them, but I also think they come from specific places so the the stories about the, the these spirits and beings that come from um come from specific territories and also if they're spirits they're they, sometimes they're said to exist in, or live in certain places specifically then they may graze you i've heard stories about where they live my um my cousin shirley she she's told me stories about different beings and creatures um traditional stories about oh, this is where they live, on like on our reserve. This is where they hang out kind of thing. So these creatures are kind of known to, or spirits are known to be in certain places connected to the land. Cryptozoology is pretty cool. And I think that's part of one of the, one of the elements I wanted to have in my narratives was just like the possibility that the creatures might be real animals that might be have escaped classification for some reason. Maybe they're just beings. So that was one of the kind of elements of the skepticism I wanted in there to keep it real kind of thing. Because I didn't want it to be too like, I wanted that skeptical aspect. Oh, maybe maybe they are just creatures that are having been classified or maybe they're, they are spirits. I wanted the reader always, always to be questioning. And I think uh, the cryptozoology element was like one of those kind of things that might blend in. It, blend in so. That was Nathan Negan Noden Adler on cryptozoology in his novel Wrist and the short story collection Ghost Lake. Well, working on this episode has made me much less of a scully. I don't think you need to believe in cryptozoology to think like a cryptozoologist, to enjoy the feeling of possibility, to look at everything around you with wonder and excitement and a willingness to believe. What I find fantastic is any notion that there are answers beyond the realm of science. The answers are there. You just have to know where to look. We all need to think a little more like a Mulder to understand and be comfortable with the fact that we don't know everything. Windigo is real to a lot of people, and in a way, that makes it real. The lessons we can learn from cryptids like Windigo are definitely real and hugely important in understanding environmental awareness and conservation. They see evil and death the way other people see God in a rose. 
That's all the time we have for this week. We've been your hosts, Sophia Osborne and Kurt Blandy. Thanks for listening. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM, and all our content is created by a team of volunteers. This episode was written and produced by Kurt Blandy and me, Sophia Osborne. You can reach us for comments or questions via email tara at cjsr.com or message us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Terra Informa. For previous episodes, check out our website, terrainforma.ca. Catch you next week, right here on Terra Informa. <laughs>